0: on last term and we're doing literature and today it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Caroline Edwards today and um, I'm just going to give a quick little bio to introduce Caroline. Um, she's a senior lecturer in modern and contemporary literature at Birkbeck, University of London and her research focuses are very much of course related to the talk. Her focus is on utopian imagination and contemporary literature science fiction, apocalyptic narrative, and Western Marxism, and has, has your book come out yet? She's the author oh, yeah. of Fictions of the Not Yet. It it's
1: not yet published. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the process. I do do you know and, when it's due? Next year. Next year right.
0: And um, Caroline's published many articles, uh, publications including Modern Fiction Studies and The New Statesman and many others, and she's regularly involved in public events, and she's spoken at many institutions, including, mean, um, I've had to cut them down because there were so many here, but the Wellcome Trust, the ICA, Harvard University, very nice, uh, the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna, King's College London, and BBC Radio Forum, amongst a lot of other ones, and Caroline is Secretary of the British Association for Contemporary Literary Studies, and the Editorial Director of the Open Library of Humanities. So, um, Hello. Without further ado, I will, Thank you. These I will let you begin. Thank, Thank you
1: very much. much. Um, thanks everyone for coming. Um, so what I'd... And if you're coming in late, there are... Or on time. There are handouts floating about um, over here, I think. Um, Literary Utopia. So what I thought I'd do for tonight's lecture was focus... Um, I'll give you a kind of whistle-stop tour of some of the more interesting and important literary texts in the utopian genre from Thomas More's Renaissance text onwards to the 21st century. But I'd like to focus in particular on how certain kinds of locations and settings give rise to certain kinds of utopian societies, as well as pointing out common kind of political um, features uh, and the way in which these societies are used to critique um, the societies of their own times, of the authors and the readers' own times. So, from the Renaissance islands at the edges of the known world to the fantasy civilizations hidden beneath the Earth's surface, um, from utopian visions set hundreds of years into the future to Martian socialist republics reached by um, advances in interplanetary transportation, uh, as well as dreams of abundant sources of energy, and then, of course, more recently, post-apocalyptic and disaster narratives which, despite seeming to sound quite dystopian, actually I'm going to suggest offer um, utopian um, glimpses of life after capitalism that these disasters perhaps um, enable or facilitate. So I think that these will give you, hopefully, uh, an introductory glimpse into what I think is a really fascinating literary genre. Um, And as I go through, I'll try and pick out um, some of the constituent forms and themes that we find in these literary utopias. It's a genre that has a capacity for bringing together multiple different generic traditions, including um, political dialogue, so the early texts are dialogic in form, meaning it's a conversation between usually two people, Um, adventure narratives, scientific romance, and also early uh, or proto-science fiction in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries. So in their visions of the good life, these narratives demonstrate the ongoing utility of the form uh, and why it's useful for authors to advance certain kinds of political critiques uh, and um, address social causes. So here are a number of features that they tend to share. And if you struggle to read, type that small I'll make these available and I'll send them to Patty afterwards. So firstly then we have the abolition of private property uh, and the redistribution of wealth. So often this means the abolition of money itself. It doesn't always mean the abolition of class or, um, or social hierarchy which can often be quite um, confusing and eccentric I guess. Usually these texts have technological advancement. Um, Many of them, particularly towards the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century, feature automation. So they address the question of who's going to do the drudgery and the hard work in the good society, and the answer will be machines and full mechanisation. And when we come to look at um, gender utopias of uh, emancipated women, it's really important that they have automated labour to uh, replace domestic labour. Um, So therefore we have a number of utopian texts that advocate for equality among the sexes uh, and also for women's suffrage. So these later 19th century utopias, in particular were used um, for that particular cause. Um, Quite often they'll highlight alternative pedagogies, different kinds of education systems um, as part of a broader reconceptualisation of society, um, how children are raised, uh, who does the parenting and how they're schooled and so on. We tend to find sources of abundant energy. So this might be electricity, it might be some kind of galvanism, it could be a clean energy like hydroelectric power, or sometimes it's a mysterious energy source and it's not entirely clear what what powers uh, that particular source. Most of these texts then, I would say, um, advocate a particular kind of enlightenment rationalism. That is to say that they consider science to be really important, as well as secularism. Um, although, with some exceptions, um, they tend to advocate the use of the empirical method, uh, and they're very keen on logic, and logical, rational, philosophical um, debate. Then we get some more of the kind of fun stuff, perhaps, the details of these novels and these texts, that they're very interested in aesthetic. So, I mean, it... It becomes a cliche that every time you read another utopia, they have beautiful architecture, wonderful parks, great civic spaces, interior design is fantastic, because they have abundant energy and there's a lot of material wealth, nobody need go without, even if there is a class system, poorer people can still have refined aesthetic sensibility. And of course, the people are beautiful, they're very healthy, and quite often they live for a very long time. So that's one of the kind of common tropes of the dreams of the good society. Many of these texts uh, in the 19th century, but also some of the 18th century ones as well, uh, feature industrialised development. So they're very interested in what might now seem to us some really quite boring questions of production. There tends to be a tour of a factory at some point. We get shown around warehouses, distribution centres. We're shown around shopping centres sometimes. Um, and we're told about the elimination of wasted resources. Um, so Edward Bellamy's looking backward, I'll come on to is a really good example of that. And then finally, in nearly all of these texts, they've eliminated war, they've eliminated conflict. Quite often, they've done away with the judiciary. They don't need a legal system because nobody commits crimes. Or they have some sort of um, uh, local-scale system for trials where people admit their guilt because they're honest. Because once you don't have poverty and you don't have disease, nobody needs to perform crimes or become a criminal. Um, And so many of these 19th-century texts then will talk in quite Darwinist sense about evolution to the next historical stage. This is an advanced civilization, particularly if it's set in the future, and they are superior to us in the here and now. So the question tonight then is, how do these texts use their exotic settings and locations to enact these kinds of utopian political visions? Um, And also, what kind of contemporary social and political anxieties do they address at different moments in European history. So we'll start off then with this idea of the classic um, utopian text and the idea of the island. The classical utopian tradition drew on an insatiable public appetite for tales of exotic travel and adventure, which would feature islands, shipwrecks, castaways, and fantastical societies hidden away across the sea. So well-known examples um, such as Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, when we come to the 18th century, or um, Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. As the cartography of the new world expanded through colonial sea crossings, European imperialism shaped new capitalist frontiers, as well as the literary imaginary that was giving expression to their ideals of individualism and self-reliance. And so the first text we have is Thomas More's um, Ideal Commonwealth and Utopia from 1516, and that's the Holbein engraving. Um, a few years after 1516 for the second edition. It's a really beautiful and very iconic image that you may well be familiar with. So as you can see from that image then, Moore's Utopia is situated on an island um, in a location somewhere in the South Seas. Um, And I wanted to draw your attention to the relationship between the way in which the utopian society is built or constructed and the isolated island setting which makes it possible that these islands then in the Renaissance imagination are the perfect place in which to have a kind of social experiment. You're away from society, you're away from European high society like the courts and the class system and you're in some kind of exotic other place where you can try out new kinds of... um, social and political mores. So Prospero's um, desolate isle in Shakespeare's The Tempest from 1611 inspired Gonzalo to imagine a Commonwealth government of such perfection as he described it. And it anticipated a wave of treatises, um, which I've uh, listed some here. So in the early kind of 1620s and 30s then, we have a number of um, different kinds of paradise societies located on um, tropical islands. Uh, And these, um, the last two texts, The Isle of Pines and The History of the Severambians, um, use remote island settings to reconceive gender relations and also social hierarchies. So it's significant, as one critic notes, that the island context appeared to permit, perhaps through psychological distancing, otherwise socially unpalatable experiments in the meaning and the social control of gender. So with this kind of palpable sense of exotic isolation, these islands um, away from early modern capitalism became a kind of privileged signifier of utopian possibility that you can make a utopian society on them. Uh, and then, of course, through the 18th century, this becomes um, uh, sort of further entrenched with scientific expeditions um, with uh, people like James Cook, Antoine Bourgainville, who go along uh, and discover places like Tahiti and Mauritius, And so these islands then become symbolic and practical locations of social and physical utopias beloved of the early Romantic reaction against the Enlightenment. So, um, Moore's Utopia is an early example then of this kind of social experimentation. Uh, You might note that that um, island map is, is roughly in the shape of a cranium, of a skull. Um, and so it marks um, something that comes up quite a lot in Renaissance um, discourse about this idea of a sovereign body um, and, and then the head that is severed from the body of the mainland. And of course, if you've read this, this one, you'll know that the island wasn't originally an island. It was a peninsula that then uh, King Utopus made his slaves dig the, the channel so that it became an island. And so we get this kind of head disembodied head um, floating away from the landmass, as just, uh, I suppose, an interesting kind of renaissance um, trope. So, uh, in the late 17th century, then, new scientific discoveries displace theological certainty, and we have an increasing formalisation of the empirical method. It's transforming things like physics, astronomy, and the earth sciences. Um, But there were actually attempts to bridge older medieval systems of thought with the latest Enlightenment scientific discourse. And so we find um, a bestseller of the day in 1665, um, uh, Kircher's Mundus Subterraneus, which um, collected all of this data, including mythology, cultural myths and tales, and introduced this idea of what came to be called a hollow earth, Uh, the idea that... Through um, the North Pole, particularly, there's a whirlpool, and that you can then access a series of concentric nested rings below the surface of the Earth. Um, It might sound incredibly wacky. It's beloved of conspiracy theorists to this day. But it actually inspired um, Edmund Halley, uh, after whom the comet was named, um, to present a paper to the Royal Society in 1692. And he tried to explain the magnetisation of the Earth by arguing that we sit on... um, the Earth's crust is on a series of these kind of concentric spheres, and that they could possibly support life beneath the surface. And so this idea then, from the late 1690s onwards, becomes popularised by different amateur scientists and writers um, and it inspires a number of exotic travel narratives. We've already gone out across the oceans. We have found most, if not all, of the desert islands that we think we can find. So where else could we um, find an exotic location in which to stage our utopian community? So um, writers start travelling um, under the surface of the earth. Uh, so I've got a list of some of these texts for you uh, under the, the heading of the Swiss cheese um, utopias. So many of these fictions then use their exotic below-ground locations to reflect upon possible utopian worlds within the Earth's core. Uh, A contemporary of H.G. Wells called C.J. Cutliffe Hine, for example, drew on the late Victorian subgenre of the lost world story in in a text called Beneath Your Boots and imagined an underground utopia of ancient Celts, refugees from the world above who are living in this network of caves and have technological capabilities far superior to those left above ground. And so these caverns and this sort of network of caves idea became popular among writers and led to uh, a critic referring to them as Swiss cheese uh, model of hollow earth theory, that there are richly detailed visions of subterranean worlds cavernous enough that they could contain mountains, they could contain oceans, and of course entire civilizations that we haven't yet met. To give you a bit of context, of course, don't forget that by the time we get to the sort of um, later 19th century, the 1860s and 1870s, we've got underground railway stations for the first time. So in London in 1863, the Metropolitan Line was opened. And for for the people at the time, this was uh, a great experience of of modernity, the speed, the impossibility of travelling below ground. And so these kinds of um, crazy sort of hollow earth stories, um, as mad as they sound, were actually blending cutting-edge industrial development with um, ancient myths that had been circulating Um, that the 17th century scientists had been collecting when they put their data together. And perhaps the best known of these late 19th century Hollow Earth stories is um, Edward Bulwer-Lytton's The Coming Race from 1871. So um, in terms of genre and form, it, it has the kind of satirical aspect that you would find in Gulliver's Travels, a sort of Swiftian um, uh, aspect to it with a kind of platonic dialogue so the utopian traveller is shown around this subterranean world and everyone explains how their politics works, how their government works, what their gender relations are and so on and of course it's an adventure narrative because he falls down a mineshaft and that's how he discovers the society, it's a narrative of first contact and there's a romance to boot so like what more could you want out of a novel, it's still a really good read so um, he, he comes across this um, subterranean uh, society after falling through this mine shaft. And then um, through a chasm, he sees the protagonist sees what appears to be artificial lighting emanating from deep into the rocky abyss, glowing, he says, like artificial gas lamps placed at regular intervals as in the thoroughfare of a great city. Um, I've given you an illustration of um, the first uh, electric street lighting, um, which was being constructed in the late 1870s and the early 1880s, so places like Clarice, London, across the cities of the United States. Um, This idea of lighting up the depths, of of removing criminality through this literal embodiment of enlightenment on the streets at night time. We can then see how this translates into this underground society in, in the hollow earth. Um, And here the narrator encounters the Vruglia. This is um, an advanced society whose scientific and technological progress are centuries in advance of his own. Uh, He's American... Um, and so, his cherished institutions of American democracy, his references to European culture, um, they consider to be utterly barbaric because they have ascended to a higher um, evolutionary and historical stage. And for them, that kind of um, conflict of, of late 19th century American and European um, imperialism and the colonization of other societies, for them, is in their distant past. Uh, and what's made this technology possible? Well, it's this um, energy source called Vril. Um, It was actually named after Bovril, sorry, Bovril became named after Vril. It's a pop cult reference for you, you can look that up. Um, It's an infinitely renewable energy. It's described as being something like electricity, but also a bit like magnetism and galvanism. uh, Very popular discourses in science at the time around questions of galvanism. Um, And so this this society have learned to utilise this powerful, almost seemingly magical energy source. It can heal them. They can use it to communicate. They have telepathy because of this source. Um, They can harness it. It's a military weapon. Um, uh, and, And it's also, they're using it to blast their network of caves to expand their subterranean empire. Um, and so because of, because of this kind of military weapon and this technology, um, hundreds of years in their past, they managed to achieve world peace. Um, and their society advanced inevitably into a utopian realm, liberated from strife, competition, and manual labor. Uh, and our protagonist is shown around the engines and the machinery of this world. Um, powered by Vril, then it's solved that problem of labor that I mentioned. So nobody has to do the hard work because Vril can do it for them. Um, It's got a balmy Italian climate, it's got exotic foliage, beautiful European-style architecture. The Virilia live in luxury so prodigious, it reminds the narrator of imperial Rome, spending indolent days of pleasure and repose um, amongst the the music of these specially bred songbirds that they've created. Happiness, he says, is the end at which they aim, not as the excitement of a moment, um, but as the prevailing condition of their entire existence. Okay. So the reason that the text is called the coming race is because towards the end of the novel, the protagonist realizes that this powerful, superior uh, society might now that they know that there are still people above ground, they might actually come back up above ground <laughs> and start colonizing the countries of the world. Um, uh, and so he worries that this this is sorry this is the coming race that's going to replace um, you know the um, the civilizations that the reader would recognise. Um, so the novel then offers us a kind of Darwinian thought experiment about a technologically and a biologically superior race. Um, the narrator's conjecture that the, the, the Vrilia people will surely venture to the surface and will become, quote, our inevitable destroyers, um, gives not only the, the title of the novel, The Coming Race, but also gives us this kind of note of doom and this sort of um, forewarning They come to represent an existential threat to mankind. um, And note, of course, how that can then be used as a kind of embodiment of American and British expansionism at this time in the 1870s and the 1880s. And so this novel becomes a kind of exemplary um, uh, work of imperial Gothic. And perhaps most alarmingly (laughs) to, to the readership of The Coming Race... Um, One of the aspects of the the civilization that that is most disturbing is that women are superior, they are physically superior and therefore um, they are also uh, culturally superior. And so it sends um, the hapless menfolk a kind of warning about smug patriarchy and its assumed continuance. And this gender role reversal we find in another really well-known uh, hollow-earth narrative, um, Mary Bradley Lane's Mizora, um, A World of Women. That is not a historically accurate contemporaneous image. I struggled to find any image that could represent this novel, but if, if, if you think about Smash the Patriarchy, you get the general gist of it. <laughs> Um, and so again, um, uh, the narrator, the, this Russian narrator, drifts across the um, um, Arctic and slides into a whirlpool um, and then finds this subterranean sea and, and washes up on the shores of Misura. Again, it's an Italian uh, climate, lush orchards, flower gardens, advanced technology. This world has all the hallmarks of a utopian kingdom. It has nationalised transport, it has a state education system that we would still admire to this day, and it has um, an interesting kind of energy production, all of which attest to um, its context in terms of utopian socialism at this time. Many of these utopian novels are also socialist novels. Toil was unknown, Vera says, the toil that we know, menial, degrading and harassing, science had been the magician that had done away with all that. Uh, And so we have sophisticated mechanisation, which has made it possible for women no longer to do the housework. Um, It shares features um, that we we later come to associate with Taylorism and Fordism, with ideas of factory management, uh, industrial efficiency and so on, we can find in this earlier text from 1880. The women, uh, how do they reproduce? This is a question um, initiated by um, Bradley Lane at this time that then inspires many later feminist uh, narratives, particularly in the 60s and 70s period, um, whereby you have a kind of feminist, separatist, utopian world. And so the question always arises, how do they reproduce and how do they um, make the children? Uh, What is the method of um, reproduction? So it's a kind of um, parthenogenesis, it's a self-reproductive system, Uh, it's described in botanical terms, (laughs) it's like a plant. It's a refinement of natural law because they're so advanced, it's like some kind of horticultural experiment um, which they're also doing on all of their greenhouses and laboratories because living underground um, they need artificial light and they need artificial food sources. So it's a matriarchal society, it's also an Aryan society and here we get this note of caution in many utopian texts where there's something slightly off or explicitly off, um, whether it's kind of authoritarian as with King Utopus in Thomas More's original text or whether it's something racist as in this case where all the women have blonde hair and so our dark haired narrator becomes very self-conscious about her own dark skin and complexion and hair. And we see a kind of discursive nexus here with ideas of race um, and eugenics and social Darwinism. Um, uh, okay, so Mizora then mirrors biological notions of the eugenicists, but it also mirrors this idea of um, progress as well. Okay, so the discovery then of the New World during the period of colonial expansion that I've just briefly outlined to you, obviously led to improved geographic knowledge. It led to our knowledge of cartography, um, knowing the limits of the world, mapping the world as such. Um, And it removed any last vestiges of unknown territories. So utopian literature um, became obliged to look further afield for unknown sites that could lend themselves to speculation If if we already know everything that exists on the planet, where are we going to find those exotic locations and settings in which we could imagine a utopian alternative world? Um, And so they have to go further afield to think about um, um, ideas of kind of alien races and fantastic technologies. So, as Edward Bellamy wrote in a letter in his magazine, The New Nation, in 1892, there can be no more new worlds to be discovered, there are no fresh continents to offer virgin fields for new adventurers. And so, what we find then is that utopias, rather than being elsewhere geographically, now have to become elsewhere. They have to be set at another historical time. And because um, everyone is so excited by um, industrialization in this period and technological advancements and advancements in science and medicine, they're set in the future. So, we start to get what is called the Uchronia, which is the utopia set in another time. And so these characters tend to kind of wake up in the future and discover that the world has um, advanced into fully-fledged utopian socialism um, and capitalism has somehow been contained or surpassed. Um, okay, so this then plays into ideas of kind of progress as this sort of linear teleological movement towards um, improved social uh, relations. Um, Okay, so uh, on your handout are some of the early Ukrainias. They go right back to the 1770s and then through the earlier 1800s. Perhaps it's it's no surprise, given the importance um, of the French Revolution, that that's where we we first uh, find this idea in a text by Louis-Sébastien Mercier. Long, um, My French isn't good enough. Uh, The year 2500 um, is, is what it becomes translated as. So the narrator then goes to sleep in 18th century Paris and wakes up in a futuristic utopia of enlightened rationalism and temperance. No one is drinking here. They've had a non-violent revolution um, and the They've managed to get rid of the monarchy, but not the nobility, although they contain the nobility by making them spend all of their wealth on great civic projects, statues, feeding the poor, and so on. So it's that odd mix where they've sort of got rid of some aspects of um, capitalist social hierarchy, but not others, um, or feudalist even. It was actually a best-selling work at this time. It sold over 60,000 copies in various languages. Um, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington reputedly owned copies of this novel, and it inspired a whole series of later um, French novels, of which this is perhaps one of the most stunning visual examples uh, Albert Rabida's *Levanté M. um, the 20th century, an illustrated text with the most stunning kind of um, late 19th century, what I guess we would now consider to be quite steampunk-like images of airships flying balloons, all kinds of electricity, um, and, and people living this kind of wonderful life. It was set in the, the 1950s, a technologically driven world of full electrification where people are travelling by air car and they have video phones. Um, so there's a whole number of these, um, The Future Eve, uh, Another World, which fictionalises Charles Fourier's um, system of factory production. They're quite playful texts. They're referring back to um, the philosophies of the utopian socialists, who um, Charles Fourier, um, uh, Saint-Simon. These, these were French thinkers who, uh, who actually inspired Marx and Engels when they were writing the Communist Manifesto and, and all of their other texts later on. So, these are highly technologized Ukrainian futures, um, but of course, they also raise the possibility that the world could deliver uh, a dystopian future of complete commodification in which everyone just becomes kind of money grubbing and entrepreneurial. And Emile Sylvestre's The World as It Shall Be from 1846 is a really wonderful example. If you get hold of this novel, uh, it is in print, um, it's a really good read. Uh, and, and so, some of these texts then slide into dystopia and um, remind us of a kind of genuine fear of automation that's haunting this period at this time. So these technological advances, then, we shouldn't forget, were a a real problem in late 19th century um, North America. Um, As Kenneth Romer, a a critic of science fiction, writes, um, since the Americans were supposed to celebrate the very machines that often put them out of work and uh, led to the strengthening of the rich, So we get um, perhaps the most um, prolific period of utopian writing happens in the 1880s, 1890s period. Many of these are American novels. um, And many of them are written by people who aren't novelists. They're written by amateurs, um, just interested, um, I don't know, people who just wanted to kind of join in um, the discourse. So they're often quite badly written uh, and, and they become quite hackneyed and cliche very quickly. Um, and they offer readers um, a kind of utopian parallel worlds responding to the events of the day. These events then would have included um, the, the inequality between capital and labour in American society at this time had become exacerbated by postbellum immigration after the Civil War. It, um, there was a cheapening of labour which led to increasingly militant industrial action, And this is exemplified in famous strikes and riots of the day, the Pullman Railroad Workers' Strike, the Homestead Steel Strike and the Haymarket Square Riot. And workers' strikes set the scene for Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward in 1888, perhaps one of uh, of the most famous utopian novels and incredibly influential. Having gone to sleep in the 1880s at a time of protracted factory strikes and unrest, Uh, challenges from the labor unions against the powerful capitalists and the great corporations. The protagonist, Julian West, is struck. He wakes up and suddenly the city is calm and quiet and ordered. Um, His hosts can't believe uh, that he didn't see this coming. They say, you must have realized that widespread industrial and social troubles and the underlying dissatisfaction of the classes and, and the inequalities of society were portents of great changes of some sort. So what we have then in Bellamy's novel is an evolutionary narrative, uh, this Darwinian tale of progress, um, uh, which gives us a kind of scientific basis for a a post-capitalist society, the next necessary stage in um, historical development. Um, The novel, as I mentioned, was was so influential that historians later declared it was only um, Marx's Das Kapital has done more to shape thought and action in the world. And it directly inspired um, a whole series of clubs um, around America in the 1880s and the 1890s called Bellamyite um, societies. Um, and they drew from this novel ideas about nationalising uh, production, particularly in, in their vision of how society should change. And given the kind of exotic travel um, narratives that we've seen so far... Reading Looking Backward Now can seem really boring. It's quite staid. Um, it's really obsessed with ideas of pneumatic systems of delivery and communication. Um, so there's extended passages about industrial organisation and management. How do you balance supply and demand amongst different jobs and trades? How do you affect a fully nationalised system of production? Um, what would shopping look like in the, in the utopian Boston of the future? Um, and, and, and so lots of warehouses and pneumatic tubes. Um, and as you can see from this uh, well-known image here, uh, at this time, compressed air pneumatic technology really did catch the public imagination um, to the extent that Alfred Eli Beach um, imagined the, the, the first incarnation of um, the New York subway. He, he envisaged being a pneumatic um, transportation system. Um, okay. Okay. So the, um, uh, another aspect then of Bellamy's text that becomes important is this question of um, women's equality amongst socialist government, world peace, um, federated forms of international <coughs> cooperation. Uh, Julian West exclaims to the utopians around him, what a paradise for womankind the world must be now. Uh, this is something that's also... Um, I don't seem to have a... a an image for this, sorry. It's also dealt with in um, Mary Griffith's 300 Years Hence from 1836, uh, uh, which is an interesting text insofar as um, it imagines women on an equal footing with men. Um, As the utopian traveler is told, as soon as women were considered of equal importance with their husband, all of the barbarisms of the age disappeared. (laughs) So utopias then, we can see how they enable writers to imagine traditional patriarchal gender roles to be reversed, Uh, and why they become so popular among contemporary readers. Another good example, Anna Bowman Dodd's epistolary novella The Republic of the Future, subtitled Socialism, a Reality. Um, And uh, again, more um, admiring of pneumatic distribution (laughs) (laughs) networks and more admiring of full automation systems that are going to release women from the servitude of cooking and keeping house, resulting in their emancipation into uh, public life. And the male uh, traveller to this utopian society can't believe his eyes. He says, one sees them everywhere, women, that is, in all the public offices, as heads of department, as government clerks, officials, engineers, machinists, aeronauts, tax collectors, filling, in fact, every office and vocation in civil, political and social life. Um, So... uh, often using a male protagonist can be a really fun way for, for, for a woman writer to play with um, ideas about kind of the smug patriarchy and so on. Okay, so that's the Uchronias. Those are the novels then that are set in um, the future. Patty, have I got about 10 minutes?
0: You've got, well, we, we run until nine, so oh. you've got we've about maybe 15 minutes.
1: Sure. I mean, I've got a lot of material. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to skip through it quickly because I wasn't sure when we were ending. Okay, yeah. great.
0: Thank I you. Mean, I don't know if you wanted to take for questions at all. i want to just keep going. Is it all right if I keep going? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay. Do you want to open the window again? I was, it was just the music was coming in. Your heart. Yeah. Shall I just
1: open yeah. it? Okay. Thank you. So... Um, Just a quick recap. We've had these um, Renaissance utopian islands. We've had utopias set elsewhere across the globe. We've then had, through the later um, 18th and into the 19th century, utopias set in the future, where technological and scientific development has achieved um, wondrous kinds of heights. Now we start to get, in the same period, so the late sort of 1890s and early 1900s, a different idea of where we might find the utopian society. And so whilst the Uchronias are looking hundreds of years into the advanced industrial future, another strand of fantasy utopian literature is imagining perfected worlds beyond the edge of our known universe. If there's no room left on Earth for hidden valleys or lost kingdoms unknown to colonial modernity, mankind is going to have to go further afield and we're going to have to launch off into the galaxy for our inspiring visions of communities and narratives of adventure. So in uh, in 1878, Giovanni Schiaparelli announced that he had observed Mars and he had observed linear features that he called canali. This is the Italian word for channels, but it became misconstrued and mistranslated as canals. Uh, on the surface of Mars. And so suddenly, um, scientists, amateurs, the general public across Europe and in America were fascinated by the red planet. The the image of the red planet having canals along it suggested, of course, some kind of advanced Martian... Um, civilization who had managed to address uh, the problems of aridity and desertification on Mars by um, developing an, a, a very kind of um, sophisticated uh, irrigation system. So therefore everybody started to believe that Mars would be inhabited by, um, by Martians, by, by um, in, in sentient beings. So it inspires a number of writers then to set utopian narratives among sentient alien races – um, as one critic puts it, in post Schiparelli Mars, after Schiparelli 's um, uh, supposed um, uh, discovery of the Canali, the literary imagination could people a habitable planet with ideal societies that served the traditional, critical and creative functions of the utopian romance. So um, in addition to this irresistible suggestion that canals must mean Martians um, with their agriculture and, and their possible utopian societies, there's also a kind of evolutionary discourse at this time um, in both the scientific and literary circles which suggests that sentient life is, uh, is adapting on Mars to a dying planet. Percival Lowell um, ex- exploited the, the canal thesis Um, And and in a series of publications, including Mars from 1895, Mars and its Canals from 1906, he really captured the public imagination with a compelling vision of extraterrestrial life on this kind of desertified, entropied world, a world in which there's a kind of struggle of over-dwindling resources. Scientists considered Mars to be what Earth was going to become in the future, many, many thousands of years in the evolutionary or cosmological future. And so they were, they were therefore also worrying about problems back on Earth. Um, problems, for example, such as great droughts in India and China in the 1870s, um, which led to you know, um, huge problems uh, and, and hunger and so on. And it, and it caused scientists to connect questions of food and hydrology and irrigation with ideas about climate change. So, the earliest Martian utopia that we come across, um, which is on the second page of your handout, on the second side, is Percy Gregg's Across the Zodiac, the story of a wrecked record from 1880. Um, And this features an ideal scientific society, um, uh, the record of which is discovered in a kind of cylinder, a manuscript, a canister, which lands on Earth in an asteroid. And that's how we know that this society exists. It's a kind of buccaneering tale of Victorian interplanetary adventurism, um, but it's also got its really tedious, boring moments, I have to say. There's a lot of scientific detail in it. Um, there's sort of the really prosaic realities of what space travel would be like um, as, as an amateur scientist and writer in the 1880s imagined it. And, of course, there's the inevitable tedium of, de- of detailing the utopian society, so the boring aspect of the utopia where each... Um, element of society, you know, government, production, education, uh, gender relations and or marriage sort of is really uh, schematically described in dialogic form. Um, So this society then uh, is completely founded around the idea of scientific proof and an extreme form of rationalism to the extent that anybody who fails to recognise the infallibility of the scientific method (laughs) is punished by incarceration in an asylum system. Uh, in, a, in a lunatic asylum, which is um, perhaps something that we wish people would pay more attention to science sometimes. Um, okay, so that's Percy Gregg. Oh, sorry. I seem to be missing some slides here, but never mind. Um, a, another account of Martian um, exploration is um, laxima 's Illyrial, A Voyage to Other Worlds from 1883. So this actually um, dates back to a kind of Renaissance scientific belief in the solar system um, where um, 17th century scientists believed because of God's um, divine universality, they believed that there would be sentient beings on all of the planets in, in the galaxy. So you get this really odd mixture of kind of scientific data, a, a, a four words that the author writes that um, establishes the narrative within known scientific facts of the day, with a kind of weirdly theological assumption that there will be planets peopled by, by other, other beings, and they will all have the same religion that we have back on Earth, which is, uh, I assume, Christianity, although it's not spelled out as such. So it's a scientific romance, but it draws an established scientific discourse, um, and the author even goes so far as to say that the reason he wrote this book was because he wanted to inspire young people to take up the study of astronomy, and so that was his purpose. This one's actually a really good one. It is is worth a read. Um, One of the things that is interesting in the early stages of the narrative is the way in which Allerial, who is this alien being, at this point we don't know he's an alien. He just seems preternaturally talented. He's a really good surgeon and very well-traveled. He's not at all impressed when he's taken to London for the first time by the narrator. Uh, And the narrator proudly takes some sightseeing and tries to show off some of the best sights that London has to offer. Um, And Illyrial is not only unimpressed, but, uh, as the narrator observes, he evidently, sincerely pitied us, pitied London, pitied England. So... the author is using this um, alien character to kind of bring into question that late Victorian triumphalist assumption that London is, is the best city on Earth and that our civilization is the most advanced on Earth, or indeed in the galaxy. And so this enables a kind of satirical reversal where the normal social hierarchies are. Um, upended uh, and um, cast adrift. We find this as well if you're familiar with HG Wells's The War of the Worlds there's a little moment towards the end of that novel um, where the Martian invasion of Earth is compared with the European um, colonists' uh, genocide in Tasmania uh, and so Wells is, is, is well known as a writer for using the Martians Um, to show just how vulnerable uh, humankind is and to turn any kind of um, Victorian imperialism on its head, really. And we're getting the same here with um, Illyrio.
0: That's
1: all right. Um, When we finally get to Mars in the novel, um, surprise, surprise, we discover it's a resplendent socialist utopia. It has lush red landscapes and also high-tech cities, Uh, tree-lined boulevards, ubiquitous electric cars and renewable energy powered by tidal wave technology. So all of the kind of best things that we have come to associate with the utopian um, literary novel. And so this discovery of abundant energy has liberated the Martians from menial labour through um, automation. Um, Happiness on Mars is thus directly equated with the requisitioning of energy um, away from war, away from strife, uh, and towards scientific and technological development. So it suggests if we could only stop fighting among ourselves... Um, don't forget, obviously, this is a couple of decades before the First World War, so it comes to seem really quite um, significant, uh, you know, re re-reading the novel. If we could just stop fighting amongst ourselves and our, our small nations, science and technology could develop... Um, and it brings a kind of evolutionary cosmology into dialogue with um, a prevailing belief in the late 19th century that, that scientific progress and enlightenment um, is, is going to advance in this kind of linear sort of way.
0: Um. Yeah, here you
1: go. OK. Um, A slightly less scientific account of spaceflight is given in uh, a novel called Unveiling a Parallel from 1893 um, by Alice Ilgenfritz-Jones and Ellen Marchant. Um, It really kind of frustratingly if you are interested in questions of space flight in the Victorian era. They arrive arrive on Mars by aeroplane and the narrator declares, I shall not weary you with an account of my voyage since you are more interested in the story of my sojourn on the red planet rather than the manner of my getting there. Um, Actually, I would really like to know how you think you're gonna get there, but she doesn't tell us. So um, the the, the, the utopian novel skips over uh, some of the kind of plausible scientific possibility. And there's a kind of lack of narratorial interest in technology and detail that we did see in Percy Gregg's Across the Zodiac and in Illyrial, the novel I just talked about. So the Martian country of Palaveria in this text is a place of unambiguous utopian perfection. We have handsome Martians, they parade around impeccably proportioned public parks. Their clothes, this is another common feature, their clothes are really simple and flowing. Um, so they don't need um, um, the constraints of late 19th century garments. Uh, They have tastefully decorated homes, and they have dazzling mounted processions. Mars was rich enough, uh, the narrator is told, to maintain all his children in comfort and even luxury, that none need hunger or thirst or go naked or houseless. So they sought out and cultivated within themselves corresponding resources, those fit to meet the new era of material prosperity, namely generosity and brotherly love. And note there how this assumption that science and technology lead to an increase in material wealth, which will then inevitably lead to kind of brotherly love and fraternal relations, the elimination of war and so on. So there's this um, very deterministic relation between these things. But the narrative's most estranging quality is its use of this Martian location to completely overturn gender relations at this time. Um, the utopian guide's sister, Eladia, is really the star of the novel. She's quite exceptional. She's a banker. She's a notable civic leader. She has financial interests in the railways, the steamliners, mining and manufacturing. To the male narrator's horror, she exhibits a variety of masculine behaviours, she, she goes to her women's club, so the equivalent of the gentlemen's club. She gets drunk on champagne. She discusses politics. She plays cards and reads the papers and even smokes a pipe. Uh, she's fond on her days off of watching women's boxing... And then we find out towards the end of the novel, so all of this is filtered through a male narrator who cannot believe his eyes at this woman and all of the kind of traditional masculine traits that she embodies. He finds out that she has illegitimate children whom she financially supports but doesn't bother to raise. So um, he says, "'She amused herself with us men, "'just as I have seen a busy father amuse himself with his family "'for an hour or so of an evening.'" Uh, and her own very powerful femininity is contrasted with his emasculation and effeminization. Um, he's described as sort of blushing like a girl when he realizes that she's been drunk and she's got a hangover, um, and recoiling in horror. Um, when he realises that that women in this Martian society have male prostitutes and and he offends his senses and so on. So you can see how much fun the the two uh, women writers of the text are having with pointing out kind of hypocrisies of American patriarchal culture at that time. Um, In the pink skies of the perfect Martian society in this novel, Unveiling a Parallel, these readers at the Fandesiek were also treated to a utopian world of clean electric power, Um, So like some of the other novels that I've mentioned, Mars then um, is a source of abundant electricity which makes possible a pollution-free society. One of the first things in many of these texts you find is that there aren't any chimneys and there isn't any smoke. And the narrators are always really... Edward Bellamy's um, Julian West is really struck by how there isn't any smoke or smog in Boston in the future. Um, So uh, um, these visions then of... um, of abundant energy are really important to the utopian form. In Illyrial, we had a car that was fueled by clean energy from ether, a sort of magical source that that powered um, the intergalactic travel to other planets. Um, And this is a time when Victorian physicists were also thinking about um, atoms and electromagnetics and questions of clean energy Um, were part of this kind of public discourse uh, and debate amongst astronomers. So, for example, they realised that they were struggling to see Mars clearly through their telescopes in London because the pollution was so bad. And so the Royal Society and other scientists started talking about having to move the telescopes outside of the city um, to minimise visual distortion caused by smog. So we can relate these Martian utopian texts back to the kind of problems of industrial um, uh, development at this time. And we can think a bit more um, about things like steam-generated electricity uh, and um, whether these power sources are kind of mystical or whether they're um, sort of detailed in any realistic kind of way. So Mars then uh, is obviously very popular in the 1880s, 1890s period. By the time we get to the early years of the Russian Revolution, um, Mars becomes um, central to many writers' um, imagination of of, um, a socialist republic that would spread not just across the world, but would indeed spread across the galaxy. So the early Bolshevik period bristled with ambitious visions of the Soviet future, nourished by industrialization, technological advances, um, and a really vigorous national conversation in Russia at the time, science, engineering, um, and human nature. So there were a number of social, political, and... Um, industrial transformations at this time in Russia. We have electrification, we have the Great Siberian Railroad, new developments in aeronautics and um, aviation. Uh, Illustrated scientific magazines were publishing astronomical photographs, and so these opened up kind of new imaginary um, cartographies around the galaxy, and they fueled the public's desire to learn about scientific discovery. And this led to a new genre of interplanetary fiction, um, the heroes of which are these cosmonauts and engineers. They're always scientists, they're always heroic, they're usually masculine, and they're going off to champion um, communism around the world. Or indeed, they're being shown that communism has worked elsewhere better than it is working back at home. So Alexander Bogdanov's Red Star is probably the best example of this um, subgenre. Um, Bogdanov himself was a scientist. By training, he worked closely with Lenin in the early years of the Bolshevik um, Party. And in Red Star, uh, the characters find a superior Martian culture. Um, This is set sort of shortly after the 1905 revolution in Russia. Um, The protagonist, Leonid, um, is approached by a mysterious um, figure who invites him to travel to Mars and and join them uh, in... uh, Sorry... um, Join their kind of highly developed scientific um, culture. Um, again, uh, as with other utopias, then um, the on Mars, the, the nations are all in harmony with one another. Interplanetary travel, uh, uh, national travel, sorry, international travel across the Martian planet um, is made very easy by a kind of global connectedness. Um, Martian history has developed and proceeded along a single and uniform path of development into a single broad society. And so Leonard is greatly admiring of what he sees on Mars and he says, I could not help feeling a certain envy as I viewed this picture of steady social evolution free from the fire and blood of our own history. That steady social evolution then um, again comes back to this idea of um, uh, narratives of progress that that were very um, popular at the time. Alexei Tolstoy's Elita, um, you, you probably don't know the novel, but you may well know the film Elita, Queen of Mars from 1924. Fantastic silent era Soviet uh, film. Again, another example of um, finding that the um, communist revolution is taking place um, on Mars. Okay. Um, this is really a very micro genre, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Um, this idea of achieving utopia by comet collision... <laughs> Um, So whilst exotic uh, and intergalactic settings provide a suitably different location from the authors' and the readers' own real worlds in which we can stage a utopian civilization, um, public interest in space and cosmology at this time also fed into ideas about what happens if asteroids or comets are coming over onto Earth, and and will they destroy us, will they destroy the planet. Um, This this dates back, in fact, um, in the... uh, uh, but back into the, the 1773, for example, there was a very famous comet scare in Paris. So we've had various different comet scares sort of dotted throughout history at certain times. Um, H.G. Wells then writes a novel in 1906 called In the Days of the Comet in which um, Earth is miraculously transformed by a comet collision. Uh, and, it, and it's referred to as the change. And once the comet lands on Earth, it, it magically transforms all of Earth into a place of beauty, harmony. Everyone who was previously enemies, people who are having affairs with each other's partners, suddenly everyone's OK with all of it and they, everything is forgiven. Uh, and as the narrator says, at the moment of the change, I looked up and saw a fading trail of greenish light still hanging in the sky. And after that there was a shiver and whispering in the air, a stronger throbbing in one's arteries, a sense of refreshment, a renewal of purpose. How beautiful it was, how still and beautiful, peace, peace, the peace that passeth understanding, robed in light descending. Um, it is, it's one of Wells's worst novels, it's pretty <laughs> badly written, but, um, but if you just skip to the end where the moment of the change happens, it's worth it. Um, So actually, writing in 1905, this anticipated the eagerly awaited return of Halley's Comet uh, in 1910. And it also responded to earlier comet scares, um, such as in 1857 and the 1773 scare that I mentioned before. Um, Adam Roberts, a science fiction author, uh, wrote about this in a review um, of Wells' novel. um, And he he reminds us that the comet scare in Paris was used to figure (coughs) as a kind of modern sort of revolution representing a kind of abdication of political agency as such, a deus ex machina short-circuiting of all the tedious business of actual reform. So where other utopian narratives are just set in the future and we're told how history developed and how these societies advanced into this final perfected state of civilization, Wells' novel just uses the kind of external agency of a comet. It's almost like a, a divine intervention, if you like, and suddenly everything is transformed, and perhaps he wished it would all be that simple. Okay, so moving then towards um, a close and coming up to date. The same year that Wells wrote In the Days of the Comet, he published another novel thinking about utopia called A Modern Utopia. And in this novel, he directly um, confronts many of the criticisms that I've been vaguely alluding to throughout my talk that were often um, levelled against utopian narratives. So these include the fact that they're, um, they're boring, that their they're, they're citizens are just smug and self-satisfied, that they recline in leisure and ease, that therefore they've lost any kind of vital energy. Their lives of ease and plenty have made them unimaginative, uncultured. Um, often you'll find a trope that they can't produce great literature or drama because there's no conflict and therefore there's nothing to write about anymore and perhaps that these utopian worlds are prone to authoritarian rule so going right back to Thomas More's King Utopus who organized the island of Utopia who was an authoritarian monarch Um, or that nothing ever changes that, that it's just now we've reached perfection, it's just going to be the same forever, and how tedious that would be. No one actually wants to live in a utopia. And to this, Wells replied, the utopia of a modern dreamer in 1905 must needs differ in one fundamental aspect from the nowheres and utopias men planned before Darwin quickened the thought of the world. Those were all perfect and static states, a balance of happiness won forever against the forces of unrest and disorder that in things... But the modern utopia must not be static but kinetic, must shape not a permanent state but as a hopeful stage leading to a long ascent of stages. this statement is really important, particularly for scholars of utopian literature, because it gives us um, a firm grounding on which to argue that the utopian impulse... Uh, towards improving society is very different from the fully achieved utopian society that we might find in some of these novels, with all of their endearing and eccentric detail, that actually the modern utopia could be kinetic, it could move with the times. And so we find when we come to the late 1960s and early 1970s, um, uh, a scholar called Tom Moylan um, Putting, piecing together a number of feminist science fiction novels and arguing that whilst they don't look like traditional literary utopias, we don't jet off to Mars or go under the surface of the Earth and discover a perfect civilization. There are problems, there are tensions, there are political struggles. He suggests that these novels do nonetheless have utopian um, elements to them. These novels then, uh, he terms them critical utopias, Include Joanna Russ's The Female Man, Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, Samuel Delaney's Triton, and Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time. Um, and Moylan suggests that they revive the utopian impulse, but they also interrogate it. They don't uh, take it for granted. They rescue a residual utopian literary mode um, at that time um, from. Uh, what had happened um, through the 30s, 40s and 50s was that dystopias had become much more popular. I don't have time. I've got a whole other lecture on dystopias. um, But because of the the two world wars uh, and the Cold War and so on, um, dystopia became much more popular than utopia. So utopian novels had gone out of fashion. Um, Moylan is trying to rescue them in the 1970s. uh, And writing in 1986, looking back at the 70s, he says... In our present situation, wherein utopian expression has been instrumentally confined in the false promises of post-industrial capitalism, the form of utopia itself must be exposed and transcended so that it can be revived as a practice of radical opposition. It cannot be left in its traditional form, for then it will either be co-opted or ignored. It must be negated to ensure the future-bearing impulse. What he means in that um, quite critical language is that uh, it is our job as readers to rescue a utopian content in these novels. And these are texts which um, the writers were involved with feminist movement, second-wave feminism at the time, with the new left, with ideas around ecology in the early green movement in America. Um, and so he says that these writers are, are giving us a kind of oppositional cultural politics in their texts. Okay, I'm I'm going to finish now with a a little section on the contemporary period, which is something that I specialise in. I'd say that one of the most striking things about speculative literature in the 21st century has been, um, and I'm sure you will have noticed this as well in film and popular culture, video games, comics and so on, an increasingly focused interest in apocalyptic scenarios. Um, And so I just want to briefly finish with one subgenre of apocalyptic literature, which is the flood fiction. Like the Renaissance utopian precursors that we considered earlier with Thomas More's Utopia or perhaps Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, uh, flood novels um, of the contemporary period um, also feature islands uh, in very interesting ways, and they also suggest that islands continue to this day, as the Renaissance writers believed, to signify a privileged site of utopian possibility. Underneath contemporary utopian apocalyptic and disaster narratives on your handout, I've listed. On the left-hand side, just a few of the more quote-unquote literary novels um, that have um, been lauded or have won prizes or have been very critically uh, acclaimed. And on the right-hand side, some of these which specifically deal with um, floods. So these flood narratives draw on an established philosophical tradition of using island geography to examine new political experiments. They help us to rethink questions of sovereignty um, and community. And so islands in these kinds of novels represent a site of alternative community. They're still slightly exotic. They're still slightly isolated or elsewhere. If you think perhaps of um, the way in which uh, Megan Hunter, the end we start from a fantastic novel, uh, Waterstones Book of the Month this month, Um, The island in her novel is in the Scottish Hebrides, so it's still somewhere away from um, the hustle and bustle of life, and it offers uh, a sort of pastoral, pre-industrial existence, uh, or rather agricultural subsistence. In Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140, that picture is taken from the novel. Um, We find um, a a near-future flooded New York um, which offers the which in which Manhattan has reverted to an island, which it used to be originally. Um, it makes possible a life after capitalism. So it's a very political novel. It's got the language of the commons, of Occupy, um, uh, of alternative politics, um, and so on. Uh, and perhaps the most interesting thing to say is that um, Robinson did extensive research about biodiversity, drawing on Eric Sanderson's uh, Natural History of New York City, Manhattan. Sanderson said that New York used to have more ecological communities per acre than Yellowstone and more native plant species than Yosemite. Um, so Manhattan then becomes a really interesting um, city space. It's, it's a metropolitan space. It's the place in which many famous disasters, disasters have happened. Um, you know, these, these great cities that, um, uh, that are destroyed in, in disaster narratives. But it also has this kind of ecological significance that predates... American colonialism and predates modernity uh, and reminds us of a kind of longer stretch of duration and of historical time so to conclude then the ancient myth of the flood insists on the special significance of the island as a site of rebeginning and, and social um, reproduction. So these 21st-century narratives really bring us neatly full circle back to Thomas More's original Utopia and Holbein's image of the head as the the um, the, shape, the shape the cranial shape of the island of Utopia. They, remind, they deal with um, immediate questions of climate change, of course, um, you know, the prevalence of flooding and flood events, meteorological events right now. But they also dramatise a utopian discourse stretching back to uh, Moore and Francis Bacon. Um, so they, uh, being apocalyptic narratives, they remind us that apocalypse means both destruction but also revelation, um, a new beginning, uh, the new Jerusalem in, um, in its religious uh, iconography. Apocalypse by Flood might just, as Megan Hunter calls it in her novel there, be the end that we start from. Thank you very much.